0: This podcast is sponsored by Traction Capital Partners, a private investment firm based out of Tacoma, Washington. Traction Capital focuses on acquiring businesses based in the Pacific Northwest that have between $1 and $5 million in earnings. For more information, please visit TractionCP.com. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Alex Bridgman, and this is Think Like an Owner, This show seeks out conversations with business owners and investors to learn how to acquire and run companies. For more information, visit alexbridgman.com. My guest on this episode is a person who writes anonymously on Twitter under the pseudonym Clearing Fog. We connected a few months ago on Twitter, and in this episode we talk about his career in investment banking and private equity, why he writes anonymously, and his thoughts on writing publicly, and what he's thinking about next. I don't come across many people in traditional finance careers who have a blog and Twitter account, and I thought it'd be interesting to hear from someone who thinks a little differently. Please enjoy. I hope you liked the episode as much as I did. Dude, want to just start by going over your background. How'd you get into private equity? Why'd you choose it? And then kind of along the lines of your, the letter to your younger self, which was fun to read. I'd love to hear about that part.
1: Yeah, sure. So I'm in private equity now, been in it for probably six or seven years. Prior to that, I did investment banking. Um, Pretty standard to get into private equity, you have to do investment banking. Prior to that, I went to a pretty small liberal arts school. What's interesting is growing up, I had zero clue what finance was. Town was 800 people. My graduating class was 13 people. I went to a small liberal arts school this isn't the reason I tell when I'm interviewing, but the reality is the reason was because my sister was there. Um, I had gone there a couple times to party, enjoyed it, liked the small class sizes, and, and thought I would to do well there. Around my first year there, I realized I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. But a friend of mine was at University of Michigan and started talking about investment banking and finance. Did a ton of research into what exactly that was. I realized, oh, crap, I probably picked the wrong college. <laughs> and so I can do two things. I can either hit the ground running, or hit the pavement, really, and, and start cold calling, cold emailing, and, and trying to get connections and network my way in, or I can transfer to a to a bigger, more name-brand school. ended up choosing the former. Um, I would spend 10 to 15 hours a week uh cold calling and cold emailing. I met a ton of people, a lot of connections, and... Uh, ultimately, uh, was able to do an internship my junior year, which then I parlayed into a full-time offer front with a middle-market investment bank. And so investment banking can kind of be tiered into, there, there's bold, bold brackets, banks, that's the Boldmans, Morgan Stanley's, city banks of the world, and then there's middle-market banks, William Blair, Helland Loki, Baird, Lincoln International. And then below that, there, there's kind of, there's, uh, 10, 20-person banks kind of across the U.S. All of them are similar in that it's an M&A experience where you're buying and selling companies and investment bankers facilitate that sale process. The reality is what attracted me to it was one, um, it's obviously a lucrative career. Um, That was an attractive aspect that uh, anyone who tells you differently is probably lying. The second aspect is that it is very challenging. Uh, It was obviously very challenging to get into. Um and the job itself was, was hard. The everyone has war stories. In investment banking, my typical day was I would get in at ten thirty AM um and I would leave at three thirty or four AM. I worked all weekend, Sundays I would get in the office at nine thirty, wouldn't leave till eleven PM. Saturdays were better. They were probably only eight to nine hour days. Um that I did for a year and a half, um and then For a lot of people, investment banking is a stepping stone to what I'll say is kind of a buy side job, uh, whether that's private equity, hedge fund, uh, corporate development, which is just M and A for a corporation using their kind of balance sheet. And so, going in, I'd say probably only 10 to 15, maybe 20 percent of investment bankers stay on that career path within investment banking. A lot of them are doing that as a stepping stone to another job. So going into investment banking, going into my internship, I didn't obviously didn't even know what private equity was at the time, started learning about that when I was interning. Once I got my full-time offer, was there full-time, realized that, that was the route I wanted to take. And to me, the way I characterize it is there's uh, it's a fundamentally different lens with which you view the world between private equity and investment banking. In investment banking, the end result or your end goal is to ultimately sell a company at the highest valuation. That is that, and so you're marketing an asset and you're, you're marketing and ensuring that the, uh, whatever price is paid is the highest. Because that is your end goal, you don't care, you don't have the same kind of intellectual rigor around it. If you find a narrative or a story that ultimately supports what you think is a, uh, a success, a, uh, a high price, and so it's supportive to the story, that's what you put forth to the market. And you don't necessarily you, you're not looking kind of at the next level layer and saying all right yes that story maybe makes sense but what are the contingencies around it that uh, prove it wrong all you're doing is an investment banker is saying all right these are all the ways I can spin it to be great and let's ignore all the bad stuff and we don't even really need to go down that rabbit hole that's per- that's probably a little bit harsh in that obviously they they still have to know kind of the big picture and understand the risks around it so that they can mitigate them and talk through them. But it's a completely different way of looking at when you're on the private equity side. You have to buy this and you have to live with it for five to seven years. And so you do a ton more work. You understand it um, at a much greater level than the investment banker. And it's that, that different approach where really what it comes down to is it's a more intellectual, honest approach. And uh, I would say it's more illustrative of what is kind of reality. So like what what makes this business tick what what why does this business ultimately exist? You get closer to that kind of core truth. Um, and so that's what's interesting to me, and that's what kind of pushed me into private equity. been in private equity for and then six, seven years. was at a fund for three years? You typically do kind of an associate program, um, which is two or three years, and then uh, a lot of times I uh, required to get an MBA. was fortunate to uh, be in my current spots now, where they allow you to advance to partner without an MBA, and so w- within private equity there's kind of three or four levels there's at the top part it's founders um, at the end of the day, you can have a twenty person firm, but a founder or two founders makes all the decisions that's pretty typical across private equity landscape um, after that are partners um, partners, managing directors, basically who's ever directly below the founder. those individuals are kind of full leading of deal team. so if there's a portfolio company, they are the they're the ones interacting day to day with the CEO they're running the business, they're, they're providing kind of that full picture to the founder or into the investment committee of this is what this is why I like the deal this is uh, the problems that are going on within our portfolio they're kind of spearheading that. next you kind of have mid levels which are VPs and principals. They're doing the full execution of the deal, and so in private equity there's, you basically bring them together accountants, consultants, tons of lawyers, uh, tax guys, insurance. Uh, you bring that all together, create a pretty comprehensive diligence package. That's what the VP kind of uh, facilitates and does, and then the associate below that uh, provides kind of support in, in terms of uh, crunching the numbers, doing analysis at the direction of kind of the people above them. Um, so that, that's kind of a fundamental structure of a private equity fund. Uh, Again, I'm at the the mid-level spot. Typically, you're on three to four, two to four kind of portfolio companies. And you're in my case, I probably split my time 50% between the portfolio itself, 50% kind of new deals. COVID-19 has shifted that pretty dramatically to 99% portfolio, 1% new deals. Um, and so it's been a, been an interesting shift, but uh, that's probably a little bit of a long-winded uh, answer to, to my background, but that's basically based in New York City now. Oh, and then briefly on <clears throat> why I uh, sometimes write on uh, Clearing Fog and why I am anonymous is, one, within my industry, it's, it is SEC regulated. Uh, there is, I would say, just noise around advertising, around kind of being public with information. And personally, the 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 risk-reward between being kind of a real name and real profile versus uh, having an anonymous profile, it it just doesn't make sense. So I happily just kind of write under a a pseudonym. What's driven that is, one, didn't get an MBA, so I have to supplement that, and I I didn't go to a prestigious school by any means uh, in undergrad, so I have to supplement that network uh, by meeting new people uh website and my Twitter are obviously a way to do that. Um and generally just kind of intellectually curious. I met a lot of great people and friends through Twitter and a great resource and platform to share and learn. Um and hoping to because of this podcast hopefully start writing more and building even more of a presence. What would you write about? That's a good question. So I have an I have an incomplete uh, blog post on value propositions and notes. I'd like to complete that. I would say I, I struggle with writing sometimes in terms of I I don't like the word perfectionist, but the, there's always nuance that is very hard to convey um, in writing. Where it's very rarely do I make a, a declarative statement without numerous caveats around that. It's difficult for me to. To put something on the page and then say, all right, well, there's all these nuances that don't make it an absolute truth. And so that's probably why I, I don't write as much as I should. But that's one thing that I will finish. I will get to that. Another is we are in healthcare. Uh, quite a bit of healthcare. So, uh, physician practice management companies going to. Uh, I'm working on a, a post right now with uh, Nikhil Krishnan to kind of articulate what is the value proposition of private equity in the healthcare in PPM specifically. So, with provider practices, what are the pros and cons around that?
0: are there some ways you've consciously tried to make it easier for people to reach out to you or encourage people if you just follow people and you don't ever comment or anything like that then no one finds you but do try to make a conscious effort to be active enough that people stumble across your stuff It's interesting i mean there's
1: you want to build connections
0: through kind of two lines it's either there's a a work or
1: a work relationship or a, a friend relationship for for Twitter, I think it lends itself to both. Taylor Pearson, uh, one of my great friends, was met him through Twitter. Um, that snowballed into a network of a whole bunch of other people that are now really good friends. The way I, do, I, I mean, the, the easiest way to do it is just DM someone, and that's effectively what I do to the extent I'm enjoying what I'm seeing on their Twitter. Um, I, I see the conversations that they're putting forth. If something resonates with me, then I will then I will probably proactively reach out. From a, an inbound perspective, in my job, I actually did quite a few inbounds uh, just through, my, through our website, uh, whether that's uh, college kids, uh, investment bankers, um, or probably the two main groups. They'll obviously see that I went to a non-target school, um, and so it's all about kind of finding that commonality, leveraging that commonality, uh, and building a relationship with the person. And so I obviously, that's what I did to get into where I am. Um, and so when people reach out to me through my work email, I respond probably eight, nine out of ten times. And, and persistence pays off too. If you email, I, I, I'm probably the type of person that doesn't, if you email me like two or three times, that's a better than a one time. And that one, it shows me that you, you're, you actually care. You're, you're not just sending a blast email to 20 private equity funds trying to find a job. Uh, or maybe you are, but you're at least hustling. Um, and so that persistence also lends itself to kind of seeing success. And then my website, I mean, again, I, I probably have like a 100 people that are on the mailing list. I haven't written on it in over a year now. But people still sign up, have some conversations through that as well. Because that, that that's probably the best path in that, again, Twitter is very hard to... <laughs> To communicate a, a very valid point uh, lends itself to sound bites and not fully developed thoughts and so someone reads some of my stuff and, and that resonates with them and they sign up that is a higher what I'll say conversion rate of a of a better conversation
0: probably. How are the quality of conversations with people who are on your mailing list versus people you reach out to via Twitter or other means? yeah
1: probably a little bit better on the mailing list. There's this one guy uh he was at KKR, in, uh, which is a massive private equity fund. In London, uh, I was there for four years, now he's at a public equity fund. Uh, he and I have had a lot of great conversations over email. Again, it, it pro- and that's why I encourage, so like David Perel, he, he's a good friend of mine. Um, his writing class, what he's doing, I think is fantastic and should be leveraged by by anyone that's kind of aspiring to, to build a network and break into an industry that that's hard to break into is that... The best way to, to meet people that you want to meet is, is by saying, this is how I think, how can you improve, how can someone come in and be like, yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Building that conversation, having that conversation is really only possible when you have like a, a, a more longer form written topic, uh, I find at least. Uh, you can obviously still do that through Twitter and such. But I haven't reached out a ton through Twitter. I don't use Twitter or so I didn't use Twitter to find kind of the job I'm in now. And I certainly don't use it now to, to network within private equity. Otherwise I would, wouldn't be anonymous. So I, I don't use Twitter much professional or at all professionally. So I, I'm more just looking for like well, what is, what do I find curious or well, what do I find interesting? And so it, it's less scripted and programmatic. Whereas when I was recruiting for both PE and uh, investment making when I was in college, uh, I would, Troll LinkedIn, try to find emails for, for these individuals, find the email kind of syntax, and then figure out, the, obviously, their names on LinkedIn, plug in the syntax of their name uh, and, and shoot them notes. what cold call uh, based on kind of commonalities of, of individuals. That is a much different task than just writing whatever I want on, on Twitter and, and throwing stuff around.
0: Do you think that if you had used Twitter and had written more in school, do you think that would have helped you? In, your, in getting to banking and private equity?
1: That's interesting. I would think so. Um, but still, there, there's there's a dearth of investment bankers and private equity professionals that are public with kind of their content. So that said differently. You look at VC kind of Twitter, and it's a very robust and developed kind of uh, ecosystem. That ecosystem, uh, because it's developed, lends itself to if you join it, then you can kind of take advantage of it. Within private equity, within within investment banking, there is no kind of ecosystem on Twitter. And therefore, if you build and create within it, within no ecosystem, you're not going to get as much benefit. There is obviously a uh, kind of thin twit, which is really more kind of public markets uh, based. And even within that, it it's, uh, probably lends itself to, to small caps and micro caps, individual investors, non-people that are, you don't see at least... Not anonymously. Guys working at Glenview or Citadel or Millennium. Uh, Those those are all very big hedge funds. And so it would have been better because it would have been another avenue for me to meet people. But I'm actually probably a little bit skeptical of how successful someone breaks into investment banking to be using Twitter. Whereas I think the immediate reaction is, yeah, if has its massive, uh, you should easily be able to get into investment banking. I think that would be my initial reaction, but when I think about it more, I think it's actually, it's a little bit harder than, than what it seems, just because there isn't, a, there isn't a developed ecosystem within private equity or investment banking, really.
0: How is having your non-target background where you had to kind of grind your way to where you are, how has that given you a different perspective versus those who went to target schools and maybe had a little bit easier time in the recruiting and uh, networking process? Yeah, so like four of the guys I work with have Harvard
1: MBAs. I would say it just made, it just meant that I had to work harder. Once you get into investment banking, your work product starts to stand on itself. And so I haven't been one to kind of ride that chip on my shoulder saying, oh, I, I came from a, a background and had to work harder. Um, because I, I really think once you get into investment banking, um, you're kind of at a level fairly level playing field. Uh, you don't get a higher bonus because you went to Northwestern University of Chicago undergrad versus my school. You get a higher bonus because the work product you put forth is really good. Once, uh, once it became clear that it's somewhat of a meritocracy, of course it's not perfect, PE is the same, but, um, once the, the realization that, yeah, we do live in a meritocracy kind of based system, the whole, like, school thing didn't really care, then it certainly doesn't bother me. Um, and isn't something that I'm like, oh, I have a chip on my shoulder, so to speak. What it does, what it did do was, um, one, allow me to create a pretty big network while I was in college. It forced me to, uh, forced me to develop those skills. Um, and also forced me to be more conscious with building a network and, and building a portfolio of this is how I think, this is who I am, so that I could ultimately kind of leverage that in my future career. I, I, don't have an MBA. I'm not going to get an MBA, and so how do I supplement my lack of credentials? For how do I supplement that? The other thing is that the way I think about it: for credentials, having a having a a brand is only valuable to the extent the individual across the table doesn't know you um intimately. What I mean by that is, and again, that's this meritocracy based thinking, is if someone can can do X Y Z at a hundred percent and this person didn't do it at 90%. Nothing else matters if what you're solving for is doing that kind of XYZ thing. All that matters is the person that does it at 100% versus 90% ultimately is the better person for the job. And so if I can convey that I'm 100% on this one task without having to show that I went to Harvard, I'm going to be more successful theoretically Because all, all a brand does is say, hey, the person went to Harvard, therefore... One, it's an incredibly hard institution to get to. That alone is a massive filter that this guy's probably good. And number two it it means that uh, the the coursework and the the school itself is hard. And so those are two very good filters that the rational thing to do is to say all else equal a person that went to this school that's crappy versus Harvard. the Harvard person all else equal again is better. But if I can eliminate and just show that you don't need to substitute brands and filters, look at what exactly I can do and judge me based on exactly what I can do, and if I put that forth in the world, you can have a higher success rate and mitigate my lack of branding, my lack of kind of prestige. Um, and so that's kind of how I approach uh, it generally. But again, I, I would say like, it's irrational to to not use use filters in life. And so the person that went to a better school, if I know nothing about them uh, versus a the person that went to a crappy school, if I know nothing about them, the person that went to a better school, I would pit that person, um, even though I have a crappy background. Um, it, it's just, uh, but again, there, there's a lot of data points that you feed into that. But uh, as a heuristic, it, it is valid still.
0: Any particular reason you don't want to get an
1: MBA? Yeah, one, I don't like people kind of telling me what I can and can't learn. Pretty adverse to the to the cost itself. Um, can with opportunity costs factored in, it's close to probably a million dollars don't let people tell me what to do. And two, the two biggest things you get from it are a network, um, and an education. Uh and network again trying to supplement that through conversations like these, which did disseminated, um uh, my website, um, and being just kind of more more out there. That's how hopefully you solve for the network a little bit there. Um and on the education front, one just kinda of naturally and intellectually curious and, and so feel very comfortable that anything taught in MBA school, um, I can uh, either learn on my own or, or learn something that I find even more interesting than kind of a case study on a probably equity pretty bad company because that's what I do day to day.
0: So, is there something that you're building towards or looking to do next?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's still fluid. I'm still learning. Still learning in my current position job. Um, I, I don't know what uh, what is next exactly. Uh, there's a partnership track in my current fund. That that is attractive, and of course, there there is the concept of kind of golden handcuffs is very real. As you kind of continue on this career path, it gets harder and harder to to do your own thing just because of the opportunity cost. But what is, within private equity, what there is there's a few things within a deal. So there's evaluation of a company, there's execution of a company, and by execution I mean. Uh, again, law firms, accountants, consultants, uh, bringing the deal together, so to speak. And then there's post-close management and operations and improvement. Of those three pillars, uh, the first one is what I enjoy the most. And so what I mean by that is what I really enjoy is saying, I like this industry and I like this company. At what price can I, at what price is this an attractive investment? That's probably what I enjoy the most. Um, which is only probably ten percent of private equity. The rest of it is is exiting on the deal, and maybe it's fifteen to twenty percent. Um, but there's a lot of other stuff that you're doing, which I like and enjoy, but I don't love relative to the the former aspect. Um, I think what lends itself to the former is probably uh, public equity investing. But one, obviously, public activities aren't a aren't uh, or active management and hedge funds aren't killing it and probably pretty picky around uh, the seed itself and what that would look like. And, and so what I mean by that is uh, if you go to Citadel or Millennium or one of the big platforms, your the, the velocity of transactions, they're trading quarterly on earnings. Uh, you're given kind of 40 names within an industry, and that's kind of how you develop there. At least that's my understanding. What is more interesting to me is doing, and again, it's cliche now, but the public, but uh, private equity investing within the public market. So eight to 12 kind of highly concentrated positions where you know everything about them. That is attractive to me, um, and I don't know if I would ever go to another firm to do that, but... Maybe within five, seven, eight, ten 10 years, um, potentially start my own fund, uh, that did that. So that's one kind of potential career path. Another career path is, and then through kind of networking, have a lot of older folks in the industry that I know within private equity, not that much older, but, uh, to the extent kind of they spin off and do kind of a two to three person shop, um, raise, a uh, hundred, a hundred and fifty million dollars. So, so we're a good we about a billion under management, um, now. Uh, and there's uh eleven of us. But potentially going to somewhere where I'm the third the third guy. Uh that could be attractive, obviously at a much smaller scale. And then the last one is just staying in my current, gig, which I really do enjoy, I like all the people here. Those are kind of the three routes I potentially see for myself as not know.
0: with the second idea of going to be the second or third guy at a new fund is this not something is this something you would prefer to join rather than start yourself
1: no i would like to start it the problem is within private equity it's a much different than a hedge fund where like today i could probably start a hedge fund use my own capital i could probably raise a million two million maybe three million dollars just through friends and family and you could theoretically have a hedge fund uh, within private equity, you probably need 50 to 75 million to even start, to even kind of get off the ground running. And so I have no ability to do that. I don't have LP relationships. And so, one, I wouldn't be able to bring the capital to bear. And so that's probably the most important aspect. And so as a third person, you're still an employee. You're not a founder. You, what differentiates it is when you start controlling kind of the relationship with the pension funds, the endowment, the individuals that ultimately give the private equity fund cash. That's a that's a pretty uh, big dividing line between if you control those relationships, then you can do your own thing. If you don't, it's harder to do your own thing. And so I, I wouldn't be able to start my own fund as as much as I think I'm awesome uh, at my job, I wouldn't be able to do my own fund for
0: a while. Does the search fund world interest you, either as an investor or a searcher?
1: Uh, as an investor, yes. As a searcher, no. One, it's super highly concentrated, uh, right? Uh, so search fund, my understanding of search fund, I've, people's definitions vary, but the couple of people that I know who've done it, and, and I've also looked at deals where uh, it was a search fund uh, business. Basically, you get 10 people to say, you get a few people to say, yeah, I'll, I'll invest money if you find a company that you like um, and that you ultimately run. That individual does that, looks for a company for 18 months, ultimately pulls the trigger, and as you get closer to that kind of 18-month mark, probably the, the quality of the asset that they're going to buy decreases just purely because just the way the incentives work, they have to get the money out. But the, the bigger thing is why I personally wouldn't do it is, one, you're, you're just tying yourself up into one company. So from a risk diversification uh, aspect, it, it is a lot riskier. That's one part, not a huge part. But the second part is I just don't love like kind of operating. Uh, I wouldn't want to be a CEO of a company. wouldn't want to. It's incredibly hard. Uh, I work with CEOs and CFOs every day. That is too much work for me. So <laughs> probably probably just too lazy for that.
0: No, I'd... I... At this point, I doubt you're the lazy one here in the equations, but you could invest in searchers, though, and then broaden your capital that way, and then you wouldn't have to be the operator.
1: Yeah, yeah. From an investment standpoint, I think it is, a, it is interesting. It's an interesting asset class, and I have one friend that is doing it that I haven't put money in to it, but uh, yeah, the other thing is you're kind of backing the individual, and so you're backing the individual's ability to evaluate investments. Which is fundamentally different than backing and evaluating the business itself. And so all of my learning and training, so to speak, has been about business evaluation, which is very different than allocator evaluation. And so there are professionals that do allocator evaluation or, uh, not allocator, uh investor kind of evaluation that I wouldn't even know where to kind of begin. Obviously, I can look at myself and be like, I think I'm a good investor. Here are the traits of myself. Does that person have it? That's what you can do a little bit. But yeah, it would just be, it's a completely different type of investing that I'm doing now, which is, do I like that business? If so, why? What price can I pay for it? Here is, does that person, do I think that person will evaluate businesses in such a way that uh, he'll buy a good business? And are the incentives in place such that he will ultimately buy a business because it's a good business and not because he has to put the capital to work?
0: Then what about the public equity side? I mean, that has a lot more of the the transactional part. Do you think you would enjoy that? What do you mean by the transactional part? Well, it's more you're not the operator. You can evaluate the businesses. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, again, that's and that's what's attracted me to the public markets is
1: that it's very easy. Here's the industry that stock trades in and here's the company itself represented by the stock. And here's the price that it's currently trading for. Is this an attractive investment at that price? You answer those three kind of fundamental questions, which are incredibly hard to answer, then then you just press a button and you buy. That is very attractive to me and something that is interesting to me. But active management has obviously trended downwards a ton. Uh and so just the number of seats open to that and again, there's a big difference between having 8 to 10 positions and doing a 20-page report on those versus having kind of 50 or 100 or working for a mutual fund, so to speak. And so there's just really not a ton of seats and opportunities to do that. But then it's also weighed against, obviously, right now I'm paid pretty well. Um, and so I have a pretty good spot right now. Um, and so it's done balancing those two things.
0: Do you think, though, that your Twitter presence and mailing list would be or just being more active would benefit the public equity career path more so than, say, the search fund or even continue on your, your own path at this point? Like If you wanted to do the public equities, like the work you've already put together so far would probably be the most helpful to that.
1: Yeah, I agree. It, yes. And that was actually that was also partially the impetus of kind of the website and my presence as well as that. When I was leaving my prior private equity fund, I did, uh, try to get into public equities interviewed at Glenview, which was interesting. They made me take a two hour brain teaser test. And, and this does that to, to the whole background. The whole, you do have a little bit of a, you are on a lower pedestal if you have a, a not a great background. And so I, I do the brain teaser tests. I leave the interview. I called up the headhunter. I'm like, yeah, I thought it went pretty well. I thought I did well. And she's like, okay. Oh, I just had an email from Glenview, the HR person at Glenview. And she's like, let me just read it to you. And they're like, and she's like, wow. To my surprise, Clarence Fogg did really well on this. We'd like to have him in again. And it's if I had gone to Harvard or something, I don't think she would have been like, to my surprise, that it, the sentence wouldn't have been prefaced with, a holy crap, this kid actually did know what he was doing or was smart that <laughs> that's just more of an aside and that I thought was interesting. Um, and so that still comes into play, but not, not a ton. Uh, but I did I did try to get into public equities and again, kind of firms like Lendview, that didn't work out. Ultimately, kind of got a great spot where I'm at now, but still kind of have the website and, and have that kind of avenue to potentially pursue, right? It's all about kind of creating that optionality. Um, and so I think that that's what the the website in, in writing does is it creates those options and it connects you with people that think similarly. And even better than thinking similarly are ones that disagree with you constructively and that they say, yeah, this was asinine. um, This is what you should be thinking. And it's like, oh yeah, wow, that was that was smart. And so yeah, that, but yeah, to to your original question, uh, the le- the website definitely lends itself more to a public equity as talent career path probably.
0: How do you think you would apply your private equity training to public equities if you were to have your own fund?
1: Yeah, I think it's uh, the depth of research that you do uh, within private equity is unparalleled. And that's primarily because of the access to information that you have. Um, And so I'm not saying that private equity guys look at companies in greater depth because uh, they're smarter or that's what they do, quote unquote. It's purely because of the access to information that they have. And so because of that, one, you're, you're seeing companies at a level that a public equity investor just doesn't have access to. So that's one. And two, you're, you're training yourself in such a way that you understand nuances uh, of companies that public equity investors also don't know. And so in taking that depth and taking that lens uh, into the pro- to the public markets, It's actually sometimes challenging for me in cases of, oh, I I don't have every single customer, every single SKU sold into that customer, and the gross profit on every SKU sold within that customer. That's the level of data that you're dealing with within the private equity world that you'll never get access to in the public markets. But if you start gaining, if you understand, and the way I approach private equity is, and this is what I tell kind of my associates, is that, if you had perfect information, if you could get any information in the world that you wanted, it doesn't matter. It was perfectly expressed to you. What would you want? What would you need to better understand this business? Use that lens and then say, this is the customer data that I need in order to ensure that five years from now, it's going to produce this cash flow. And so if you understand within the realm of possibility of what, like what perfect information you could have, you can then use that and start scaling it back towards this is what is acceptable within private equity, and then this is what is acceptable within public markets. I I think the the depth and breadth of information that you consume and understand at the industry and company level, I think prepares you really well to analyze companies within the public markets. What it doesn't prepare you for are uh, probably the emotional
0: aspects of seeing the daily stock prices. Do you invest public equities on the side, or are you not allowed to from your firm?
1: I'm allowed to. um, I don't a ton primarily because the, the threshold of work that I personally require to invest in an individual name is too much in terms of, in order for me to be comfortable that this is, at this price, this has to make sense, and this is the range of values that I think is a fair market value, um, the work required for me to get, get that kind of thesis created is, is tough, and, and I don't have a ton of time to do that. I will say with COVID uh, and the, the gyrations in the market, I have invested quite a bit within individual names uh, that I found that and again, those, when prices are depressed, the amount of work and the margin of safety that you need to have around a name is a whole lot less. And so if, some, if everything's trading at 15, 20 times EV EB to EBITDA, I better know that thing cold and know that one, that's a rational multiple, is going to maintain the same and earnings will increase. If that's the market you're in, it takes a whole lot more work. If that same thing is trading at eight times, seven times because of a, a shock to a system that you think is somewhat temporary, the amount of work and margin of safety needed around that is a whole lot less. Um And so from a personal portfolio perspective, uh, in the last kind of two and a half, three weeks, I have invested a fair amount in individual names. But again, that's purely because uh, I think they're... The market was a little dislocated, and it makes it easier when prices are, are a lot lower.
0: What class would you teach in college if it could be any subject you wanted and you could design the course how you liked?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I would say probably something around complexity science. Um, and so I talked a lot about, <clears throat> in that kind of letter to my younger self, about the world is very probabilistic, and it's all about kind of pushing towards a higher probability of, of something occurring. There is no black and white, everything is gray. There are no kind of fundamental truths to the world. And so teaching that and intuiting that at a, at a younger age and certainly within college, I think is would be super valuable. All of that is wrapped up into kind of uh, kind of complexity theory, I believe. And, and so teaching that and creating a course around that, I think would be super interesting. much more interesting than, on investing or private equity for
0: sure what's something you used to believe fairly strongly that you've since changed your mind on
1: partially because of that worldview around beliefs are always fungible and i would say that that's that's probably something i didn't believe all the time and so politicians get ridiculed for flip-flopping and changing their opinions and changing their minds around that i probably held that belief as well uh that you should stick to kind of this is a core tenant or this is what matters I've probably gone to a complete other side where everything is fluid. Um, you should be incredibly fluid with your your thoughts and opinions around around everything. And so as facts, as things change, even at the at a micro level, you should incorporate that into your into your rationale, your thought process, your belief system. And so no one, uh, what it comes down to is no one knows anything. So it's just about kind of selectively creating the best possible decision with new variables and inputs. Probably didn't fully. I didn't fully believe that probably for the last, until the last time, kind of three to five, six, seven years. Before that it was, I was probably more rigid in my thinking, less intellectually flexible, so to speak, and thought that was a good thing and not a very bad thing.
0: What's the best business you've come across? Yeah, I
1: would say probably widening the scope of a business, probably, probably the Mormon church. I think that's a fantastic business. I think, I think, I'm pretty sure like 10% of people's kind of savings within the Mormon church go to the church itself. They're incentivized to have kind of large families, so it's, it, the growth rate is obviously solid. Probably a little controversial, but, uh, yeah, religion in and of itself is, uh, if you classify that as a business, you go to Christianity or, or Buddhism, or it, Buddhism is less kind of centralized around, uh, around probably one church. I would say there are pockets within religion that are incredible businesses that have stood the test of time. Corollarily to that, it was probably government. If you look at the UK as a business, that country's been around for a while. Those would probably be two kind of avenues I'd pursue if you're saying like the best business in the world. The US government, probably the best business. That's why it's a risk-free rate.
0: Thanks for coming on. It was fun to hear from an anonymous Twitter account and just learn a little bit more about you. And thanks for coming on. Really enjoyed it.
1: Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. For more information, including show notes, transcripts, and other links, please visit alexbridgman.com.